Two weeks ago, I covered Galatians chapter 1 to 3. And for those of you who are not there, I'm going to review a little bit today. But the reason is, and I think it is good to review that in our minds, that on the old baptizing tours and earlier in the church, and even today to some extent, people are always asking about Paul's teaching about the law. And the common idea among most, not all, but most of the Protestant world is that Paul somehow did away with God's law. And they read scriptures in Romans and Galatians primarily, plus Colossians 2 and Ephesians 2 and a few other places, that they're able to twist and to somehow convince themselves that God's law was done away with or that Paul or that Paul did away with it or something. Anyway, they have a way of explaining those things. And it's very important that we understand that because, as I said a couple of weeks ago, thousands of our brethren left the truth because their minds were twisted around by some young smart alecks out in Pasadena to think that all the teaching that they'd heard from Mr. Armstrong all those years was not true. And it was just ridiculous. And yet it shows how shallow, how shallow the understanding is of many of our brethren. And I know many of you probably have not thoroughly proved these things to yourself. And I want you to try to prove. God says, prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Once you prove, brethren, that there is a real God by various ways, a real creator that's in charge, and if you can prove to yourself, you know, and you can if you really think about it, about the specific prophecies affecting major nations, the promises of God that have come about, the change in the lives of human beings, and, of course, the whole way of life that God sets forth, and so on, and the preservation of the text, but they have arguments about that one. But it's pretty hard to disprove the major prophecies affecting major nations all over this earth that God has given and this church has given specifically. Only the church of God under Mr. Armstrong in recent times and those of us who were taught by him. There is a God who described the rise and fall of major nations. And he is absolutely accurate and this book is accurate. So you have to prove that. Once you prove that, we have the truth. And we don't need to be embarrassed about it, brethren, ever, or ashamed about it. We can prove it forwards, backward, and sideways. And I'm not smart. There's nothing unusually brilliant about me. I was in the upper third or fourth of my class, but I was never salutatorian or valedictorian or anything like that. But I, as a normal human being who's had a chance to study it, of course, I've had the extra blessing of teaching the Bible for many years, but I'd be glad to go up to, against any, I mean any, top Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox theologian on earth today if they're willing to just take what the Bible says rather than playing with words and try to use some special in, in, in meaning that they think they can come with on words or something because I'm not a Greek or Hebrew expert. But you have whole panels of experts, you know, translating these things. And I can just tie them up. I remember when Raymond Manair and Burke Manair in 51 and I, and then later Burke in 52 were on these baptizing tours. We would meet men over and over that were older than we were. Somehow the brethren or the people wanting baptism would often invite their minister to come out. They thought that would be nice and make him happy. He could be there at their baptism. Of course, it didn't make him happy at all. <laughs> he, he thought this Armstrong called us getting these people away and they'd come out all hostile. And here we were, just 21 or 22-year-old boy, boys in a sense. But what did we do? Every single time God gave us wisdom because we knew what the Bible said and frankly they just did not. 
And they were embarrassed. And they'd excuse themselves after a few minutes when we started to explain this and say, can you prove this, prove this? And this is what the Bible says. And well, they couldn't. No way. The Bible is a powerful weapon. It's a sharp two-edged sword. And we need to really understand it to be able to use it the right way. At the end of Second Peter, to review just briefly, the very last thing the Apostle Peter wrote in his life, Second Peter, he talks about were to be found without spot and blameless, chapter 3. Second Peter, chapter 3, now verse 15, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as in all his epistles, talking about Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. God inspired Peter to say that Paul wrote many things hard to understand. That's not said about most of the rest of the Bible, but God told Peter to put this in here about Paul's writings, which those who are untaught and unstable twist. The Bible uses that term. They twist, they distort. They monkey around with it. They twist to their own destruction. They twist Paul's writings. And they destroy themselves when they do that to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Of course, they twist the whole Bible, but especially Paul's writings. And so God warned us ahead of time that this would happen. And then he goes on, You, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, I'm warning you here, Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error. And the King James has it someone like this, and I'm using the new King James, as you know, being led away with the error of the wicked. But the new international version and a number of the interlinears and commentaries show you the, the literal Greek is the error of lawless men. The error of lawless men. Peter is warning specifically they're going to twist Paul's writings. These lawless men, they're not talking about traffic laws. They didn't have any traffic back there. They had ox carts. He's talking about God's law, obviously. The error of lawless men began to twist God's law even at that time as they did more and more. And then later the Protestants have based their whole religion on that, doing away with God's law and trying to be under grace and saying we're under grace and not under law. And, of course, the thing is it grace or law. The truth is it's grace and law. If you repent, you can be forgiven your past sins through grace, but that doesn't mean you can go around and the next day kill your grandmother or break some other law. That's ridiculous. But they don't seem to be able to see that. So they get all mixed up on those basic points, and God has opened our mind to see better than that, I hope. Again, a little background here. Uh, I would also say, remember, let the Bible interpret the Bible. We've always said that's a very important key on anything like that. Don't try to interpret so-called difficult scriptures all by themselves. Let the plain, clear scriptures help you understand. Now, that doesn't mean knock on the head. It doesn't mean you can see something is really clear over here and something clearly contradicts it over here. That doesn't happen if you have a correct translation. It doesn't happen. But there are things that could be possibly mean something else. But you let the clear scriptures interpret the unclear scriptures. Then you get the answer. Remember last time again, I went back to Acts chapter 15, brethren. And let's turn there briefly, if you would. Acts chapter 15.
Here we find the Jerusalem Conference, the only major ministerial conference described in the Bible. And what was it about? Well, partly about this very thing that is covered in Galatians, because actually Paul had a problem uh, before this conference, which I think precipitated this conference. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren that came down to Antioch in Syria, in the eastern Mediterranean, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Were they questioning the Ten Commandments? No. Brethren, these were all Jews. If they had even started to do that, they might have been stoned on the spot. <laughs> these Protestants, they don't get it. These were, this was a more of a marginal thing. They were saying, you've got to be circumcised. That was just a statute, you see. And they were saying even the Gentiles had to be circumcised. And in a sense, the Gentiles had to have the little boys physically circumcised to show that they were under the covenant with Abraham. They were saying these little Italian and Greek and other boys and girls, uh, boys, I should say, in all these different nations, because the men were to represent the family in those days, and they were to be circumcised to show that they were under the Mosaic law, the coming under the whole thing. It wasn't, it wasn't the argument was not about the Ten Commandments. Do you, do you not kill? Do you not steal? Do you not commit adultery? No. It was talking about if you're circumcised according to the custom, not the Ten Commandments coming from God, written with God's own hand, but the custom of Moses. And that's what they argued about. And so they came up here, and the same thing was brought up in verse 5. Some of the sect of the Pharisees, these super self-righteous strict people, came there who believed, they believed the truth, but they still had this very self-righteous strict tendency, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep what? The Ten Commandments? No, the law of Moses. But somehow the Protestants are not willing to realize that the law of Moses, brethren, which historically the Jews and many of the early Gentiles and so-called church fathers even understood, the law of Moses, brethren, is the whole system. And I would like to write an article on that sometime and hope I can get to all the things I want to write. But at any rate, the law of Moses is the whole system that God gave through Moses. The spiritual undergirding, yes, was the Ten Commandments. That was what was put right in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. You know, the, the Aaron's rod and and uh, the, the, the literal Ten Commandments, the tables of stone, and so on. And uh, but, but to show how important that was, right in the Ark of the Covenant. But the law of Moses was the statutes, saying if you have a flat roof, you're to put a railing around it, and all these other statutes, civil laws and ways of life, and then the judgments, if a man steals or... If he does something bad, takes advantage, or to give him five lashes or 15 lashes or whatever the judges lay upon him, or the death penalty for murder, rape, capital crime, as we say today. And then the, it also involved the washings, the animal sacrifices, and the physical washings. And so they had to sacrifice these animals and then do these physical washings, all of which pointed toward Christ because Christ was the ultimate Lamb of God, and the washings, of course, pictured the cleaning up of the Holy Spirit that cleans us up today. And Paul touches on that later here. That whole system, get it, the whole system is the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments is the spiritual law that, as Mr. Ruddleston explained, and I have it in my notes too, he went back there, Genesis 26, 5, 
Abraham kept that long before these other things were given at all. That came way first, even to Abraham, the father of the faithful. So we have to understand that's not the law of Moses. That's the spiritual law of God, immutable, unchangeable from creation when God even gave the Sabbath day to Adam and Eve directly before there were Jews. People say, oh, God gave the Sabbath to the Jews. Great. Where were the Jews in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> I explained that last time. There weren't any Jews when Adam and Eve's time or in Enoch's time or even in Abraham's time. The Jewish people began when Abraham had Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob and then Jacob had 12 sons and one of his sons, a great-grandson of Abraham, was named Judah. And the Jew term Jew proceeds from Judah who was one of 12 sons of Abraham. A great-grandson, I mean, one of twelve sons of Jacob. So the law of Moses is the whole system. And when Paul talks about that, that's the thing you have to understand and begin to prove to yourself, sometimes even by the context. And I'll try to do that, which I did last time. Anyway, that's what they were arguing about and what this whole thing gets back to. Okay, quickly, let's go back to the book of Galatians now. And I'll review a couple key verses here to get us underway. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul writes, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith in, of, it should be of here, brethren. Again, look it up in commentaries and interlinears, but by the faith of. Big difference. It's not just your faith in Christ. It's the very faith of Christ put in you. And that's what it's talking about here. There are only two places where it's li listed that way, or three. Galatians 2.16, Galatians 2.20, and also back in Revelation 14.12. Here is the patience of the saints, and so on. And it talks about the faith of Christ, keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Christ, not just in Christ. But a man is not justified. So as I said, you have to get these things. If you're taking notes, get it down. What does justify mean? Well, the Protestants try to limit it to meaning, uh, meaning in a legal sense of, of, of clearing and, and that God has cleared you of, of all bad and so on. But it also just basically the word, they've interpreted that word, but the basic word means to be made right. Just like an old electric typewriter, you have an automatic justifier. It lines things up. You're made right. You're lined up. You're lined up with God. And that's the basic meaning. Your past sins are forgiven not because you've kept the commandments perfectly all your life, because no one has ever done that except Jesus Christ. That can't forgive you because you haven't done it. I didn't do it. Nobody does it. You're forgiven your past sins because of the sacrifice, the shed blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you want to be everlastingly grateful for that. Everlastingly. And then your future sins are forgiven too as you repent. As you repent and change and ask God to put them under the blood of Christ. But that's the key. So you're justified. A man cannot be justified or is not justified by works of law. Notice it says the works of the law. Again, check this up in an interlinear commentaries. It's not in the Greek the works of the law. as though it's talking about just God's Ten Commandments or something. It's just works of law. And it certainly would include all kinds of things that people do, even Gentile works for that matter, but it's including all of the laws of Moses and the rituals and the statutes and the traditions of Moses. Works of law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's how you are forgiven. 
by the faith of Jesus Christ and, of course, having repented and given your life to God. So you have to understand that aspect of it. Then over in chapter 20, which is my favorite verse, you newer people may not have heard me explain that, but Galatians 2.20 is my favorite verse. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You live by the faith of Christ, and Christ lives in me. How would Christ live his life in you? Would he live a different life? Again, most of you know the scripture, Hebrews 13. Write it down if you don't know it, a basic scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ would not live a different way of life in you. When he was on this earth in the human flesh, he showed that it was possible to keep the spiritual law of God in the flesh. He set us an example that we should follow in his steps. It can be done, but none of us do it perfectly, but we grow toward that through Christ in us, through the faith of Christ, you see. We grow toward that. So... Christ will not change. He said in John 15, verse 10, I have kept my Father's commandments. John 15, verse 10, and all the rest of his life shows that's what he did do. He kept God's commandments. He did set us an example. So he will live that same life in you, not a different way of life. And so the very start of this book shows that before you get into all the technical points. And then he says to these Galatians, O foolish Galatians, Chapter 3, verse 1, Who has bewitched you? So right away he shows he is not sure. There may have been two or three different parties, frankly. Some may have been these Judaizers among the church. There may have been other Gnostics and others getting in there, messing with their minds. The main ones were probably Judaizers who were overdoing this ritual idea from the church of God who were weak and either not converted at all or were a false prophet in the church. But he said in verse 2, Did you receive the Spirit by, the, by works of law? Again, no, no definite article. Not the works of the law, but works of law or the hearing of faith. When you repented, did you go through the sacrifices of Moses so you could be forgiven? Of course not. Those people in the churches in Asia Minor, which we call today Turkey, many of them, hundreds of them, had been converted by repenting and accepting Jesus as their Savior, and they'd seen the change in their lives. They'd seen how they'd come out of paganism and worshiping the great Diana and all these other false gods. They'd seen how they quit fornicating because that was one of the main aspects of the Gentile religions. They'd seen how their whole lives had been changed. They knew that. Did you get that help from God because you went through a bunch of rituals? No, they did not. They just accepted Christ, the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? He says, verse 5, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit among you, uh, into you, and works miracles. And of course, Paul had done that. And some of their faithful ministers. Have you seen any of us doing all these rituals and sacrifices? Does he do it by works of law or the hearing of faith? Well, they knew better. They knew it was not done by those things. It was by the hearing of faith. And so that absolute trust in God, but that trust comes through obedience. And if you really trust God, you'll do what he says. You'll know he's there. You'll know he's right. 
You believe His Word, and so you'll try to do what God says. It's living faith, not dead faith. Anyway, he goes on, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law, again, the the is left out, are of works of law, you're relying on that for salvation. You're relying on that for justification. As many as rely on that are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is not continuing all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, last time I turned back, if you want to write it down, I won't turn every time again today, but Deuteronomy 27, 26. Deuteronomy 27 lists a lot of the statutes of God. It does not list the Ten Commandments. And Deuteronomy 27, it's chapter 27, 26, verse 26, Deuteronomy. It does not list the rituals and sacrifices either. It lists statutes. So part of the law was the statutes of God and the judgments. You're to be punished for this and that, you know, in various ways. So it's the whole system. Some of the scriptures he refers to are talking about the rituals, the animal sacrifices, and the washings. Others are talking about the statutes involving the civil law. It was all part of what? The package. The package was the whole legal system given through Moses. Hundreds of years after the Ten Commandments were given to Adam and Eve, and hundreds of years after the Ten Commandments were also given to Abraham, and I'll just quote what Mr. Ruddleston said to you. I don't need to turn back. I think he turned to it, as I remember, in the sermonette. But back in Genesis 26, Genesis 26, verse 5, Isaac is told, Abraham was blessed because he kept my commandments, my statutes, uh, and, and my laws, my teachings, whatever else. And so he kept God's statutes, his commandments, and his laws. Abraham kept God's commandments and his statutes. It doesn't say he kept his rituals, but he did have some of the statutes, probably had some of the holy days and a number of other statutes, including circumcision. And Abraham kept those, and he was blessed because of living faith. So he did have God's Ten Commandments, and he was blessed because of that. So anyway, you go on now, uh, verse 11, but... Uh, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident that just shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Live by what? The Ten Commandments? No, he's talking back in Leviticus 20:18. Write this down. I read it last time. Leviticus 18, verse 5 is what he's quoting from directly. This is how you know what it means because he's quoting directly from the Old Testament. This is what it says, Leviticus 18, verse 5. And he's talking there about God's statutes, not the Ten Commandments. And so you're to live with that whole way of life. And it was not talking about the rituals in Leviticus 18, verse 5. And so then you go on, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, as I said last time, one of the most awful, rotten thing I've ever read was written by this Tim LaHaye, as I remember, one of these prophecy guys who's very famous. And he's trying to say that you're cursed if you keep the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments are a curse. And I have that, and I may use that in one of my articles to show right out of his own writing. The Protestants have an amazing way to twist this around. Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? No. What does he say? Again, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. When you read the Ten Commandments, 
Go back to Exodus 20. Do you see any curse there? Thou shalt, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. Love your neighbors yourself explains how for 10 points. No curse there. What is the curse of the law? Well, I will turn back this time. I did before, so but I'll, I'll do it this time. To turn back to Deuteronomy 21, maybe it's good I turn to some of these, which I turned to last time. I just want to review some of these key points today. Hope I don't use up all my time reviewing here. <laughs> but I want you to get these key points. This is Deuteronomy uh, 21, chapter 21 of Deuteronomy and verse uh, 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, in other words, he's, in, he's raped some woman or he's killed somebody and he's put to death, you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight, you'll bury him. Which for the last sentence, he who is hanged is accursed of God. Is that saying the Ten Commandments are a curse? No, of course not. He who is hanged, this terrible criminal who's killed or raped or done some horrible thing, he, that sinner, committing a capital crime, he is the cursed of God. And frankly, these men who twist that, they're going to be coming under a curse of God. In fact, they already are. But eventually they can be forgiven, probably in the great white throne judgment, of course, unless they've committed the unforgivable sin. Why are these terrible things happening around the world and to the United States? Because we are under a curse. We have broken God's laws, and God is bringing us down and down and down, and our nation will never be the same, frankly, even as it was two years ago. We've just started to come down fast the last couple of years. So we need to understand that. God does... You know, he, your ways will find you out. And we have turned away from God and His laws. And we are under a curse because of that. But the curse is on those who break God's law. Not, not that the Ten Commandments are a curse. That's ridiculous. And then you go on here, if you would, to... Uh, uh, let's go on in Galatians... I was over in chapter 3. Let's go back to where I was there and catch up here. Uh, the curse of the law, verse 13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It doesn't say the, the, the law is a curse. It says they are a curse. Every person who has to be put to death is under a curse. In other words, he's under what? What is the curse of the law? The death penalty. He's under the death penalty because he's broken the law of God in that way that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and he shows how to Abraham and his seed were the promises made and so on. And he says, verse 17, this I say, the law, get this verse, brethren, verse 17, the law, what law is he talking about? The Ten Commandments? No, the law, which is 430 years later, later than what? <clears throat> Verse 16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So this 430 years you date back to the middle of Abraham's life. And from there was 430 years until they came to Mount Sinai. And God gave the whole legal system. He gave the Ten Commandments. And then in the following days through angels, as it says back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he gave some of the other statutes and judgments and the whole legal system. He gave the whole legal system beginning at that time about 430 years after, after Abraham was given the promise. 
But Abraham himself had the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments weren't given 430 years later. They were already there. That's why God could say in Genesis 26, 5, that Abraham kept God's commandments. They were already there. And then verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? Again, what law? Well, that's the subject is the same one, the whole ball of wax. You have to interpret these things by the context. And in our English language, we say law. As I said, if someone bangs on your door, says, open up in the name of the law. Well, Frank, you better peek out and be sure it's a policeman. It might not be one today. You don't know who's out there. But maybe it's the police. Open up in the name of the law. So that means the police are there. That is the representatives of the law. You get a traffic ticket because you've broken the law. What law? Well, just a local ordinance about traffic or the stoplight or something. And then you, you jump off a building and say, well, maybe God will protect me. But he has a law called the law of gravity. You see, that's the law too. What word is used for all this? Just one word, law, law, law. It all has meaning, something set in motion. The Greek word is namos, that which is stated. Namos, speaking, nominate, that which is stated by inference and by usage, a law. The law it's talking about has to be interpreted by the context, just like we do today. When the policeman says, open up in the name of the law, if you really see a policeman there, you don't ask, well, what do you mean law? You usually better open up. <laughs> or if he stops you by the road and he has his flashlight in your face or whatever. You know what law he's talking about. So anyway, the law, it was the whole legal system. The whole legal system. Remember that, brethren. Through this whole chapter, it's mainly the whole legal system, including the statutes, the judgments, the washings, the ritual sacrifices. They were given sacrifices to do morning, noon, and night, three times a day, and so on. So there's the whole legal system. So then, verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added. Added to what? Well, the Ten Commandments were already given. It was added because of transgressions. But it says back in he, in Romans, you know, where there is no law, there is no transgression. How could they transgress something unless there was a law? Well, the Ten Commandments were already there. And, and uh, a lot of you look puzzled. I better tell you where in Romans it says that. I, I, I think it's 4.15 or 3-something. I get the two places mixed up, but let's turn back and not rely on my memory. Uh, yeah, well, it's Romans 4.15 because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. How can you break the law? How can the policeman arrest you for breaking the law when there's no law about that? You see what I mean? There's got to be a law for there be a breaking of a law. Transgression means the breaking of a law. So there was a previous law. What law? The Ten Commandments. Because they kept breaking the Ten Commandments and they were a carnal nation. God gave them the whole legal system as a tutor, as a schoolmaster to teach them that they're to obey the Ten Commandments, but they're to also, you know, be careful with their neighbor and they're to take care of him. And if his ox falls in a ditch, help him out. And if their neighbor's on the roof, they have a railing so he doesn't fall off. All these statutes are part of the legal system. And then they were to have the washings and sacrifices to remind them they needed forgiveness for their mistakes and they need to be cleaned up. 
eventually cleaned up by God's Holy Spirit. But the whole legal system was added to the spiritual law, which was already there and given to Abraham. So it was added, you see, to the spiritual law till when? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. What was appointed? The Ten Commandments through angels? No. But the whole legal system and the statutes and judgments were obviously by other inferences in the Bible and one fairly clear scripture back here in Hebrews. If you want to turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, try to find that here quickly. I didn't have room to put all my markers on all my references here. And with my shaky hands with my stroke, I can't turn as fast as I used to. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at different times and in different ways spoke in past time to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, even then Paul called it the last days, spoken to us by his son. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going back to chapter 1, just <laughs> at, at chapter 2. Therefore, he says, chapter 2, verse 1, we must give more earnest heed to the things we've heard lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels, what word? Were the Ten Commandments spoken through angels? Go back and read it. Exodus chapter 20. The voice of God was speaking. It shook the whole earth. The whole area at least. If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, what giving just Ten Commandments? No. What was spoken through angels had to do with punishment. So the angels gave the statutes here. Uh, proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. They gave the statutes and the judgments, you see, and undoubtedly the rituals as well. God spoke those things, those lesser laws, through angels. But He spoke the spiritual law, the Ten Commandments, and the tablets remembering that was stuck right in the Holy of Holies. You don't find any record of the statutes or of the washings and rituals in the, in, the, in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies, right under the seraphim, the cherubim's wings here. Now, you don't find that. Only the great spiritual law of God, the Ten Commandments, were put in that special place because those laws have never been changed, will never be changed. All right? So that's what he's talking about. So he says... Uh, and it was appointed through angels. That is, the low legal system was added to the Ten Commandments, spoken through angels by the hand of a mediator because Moses was there and received that from them. So then he goes on about a number of other things and he shows that, therefore, the law was our tutor, verse 24. What is a tutor? A tutor is someone who drills you. The King James says, schoolmaster. A tutor would take a young, wealthy man to school, bring him back, watch over him, work with him, and teach him and drill him. And the law of God, that is the law of Moses, I mean, was giving us, giving our ancestors in ancient Israel a constant reminder of sin. So they, if they broke this, they had to spend so much money or, or get, be fined, or they had to have five lashes, or they had to repay double or they had to do this or that, and then they had to offer sacrifices, and they had washings to clean them up. You see, constant reminder of sin, reminder of sin, reminder of sin has a penalty. It was a tutor to make them realize the need of a Savior. So it was a tutor to bring us to Christ. 
It wasn't a tutor to get them away from breaking the Ten Commandments. It was the exact opposite. It was a tutor to bring us to Christ. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, what do you do? You follow His example. What is His example? You know, John 15, verse 10, I have kept my Father's commandments. He said that is His example. That we might be justified, that is, our past sins forgiven. How? By washings and sacrifices? No, but by faith. We accept Christ's sacrifice in faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We don't have to have all that system anymore. But we certainly do have the spiritual law of God. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We've got to have real faith that He paid for our sins. And most of all then, today, brethren, that He will live His life in us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ living His life in us. For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, we put on Christ. He lives in us. He guides us totally to the degree we yield to Him, of course. None of us do it perfectly. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. It doesn't depend on animal sacrifices and going through all the rituals and the statutes, it's having faith in Christ, and that puts you in the church, and you have the Holy Spirit, and if you have God's Spirit, then you're all one in Christ Jesus. That does not mean that we don't have physical differences. We have two sets of bathrooms out here, one for the men and one for the women. There are still differences, and men should not marry men, and women should not marry women. I think you get that point. But in Christ and all our spiritual relationship to God and our ultimate salvation, we're all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed, as Mr. Ruddleson explained. You become spiritual children of Abraham and uh, heirs of the promise. Heirs of the promise. Uh, all right. Then going on now to new material, which I'd better hurry now. But the other, chapter 3, is more difficult, so I want to cover that again a little bit. Now, I say that the heir, if you're an heir of your father's inheritance, as long as he's a child, does not differ from a slave, though he's master of all. You know, if I have a little, when my boys were 5 or 7 or 10 years old or whatever, they were not in charge of my estate. They were still under uh, tutors and working others were there telling them what to do sometimes and even the college gardeners were around helping them do this and that and their mother and everybody else but as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father but even so we when we were children and brethren notice the we and you in this chapter in the first part he's talking about jewish converts we who knew the law so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, the physical things that they had to do, morning, noon, and night sacrifices and washings and so on, physical things. But when the fullness of time had come, when Christ came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And I want to clear something up for you here, and I hope you'll listen carefully. Most of you know this, or many of you do at least, and know that you know it, but some don't. I profoundly love and respect Mr. Armstrong. I look on him as a second father, and I've said that for decades. I'm not doing that for your benefit. My wife knows that, 
Sometimes she thinks I almost talk so much about him that I'm worshiping him, and I don't feel that way at all. I don't want to do that. I'm just trying to get the right balance. We want to deeply honor him, but he did make mistakes. He did make, in fact, he said so. He said, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of mistakes, brethren, but God has never allowed me to make some terrible mistake that would wreck the whole work, and that's true. But one day, as I said in the last sermon, one Friday evening, late afternoon, Mr. Armstrong came down to my office on the fourth floor of the Hall of Administration, and another minister and I were sitting there, and he came in and was very humble. I was surprised. I said, oh, you sit in my desk chair. Oh, no, that's your chair, Rod. Well, I moved over. I was going to sit there like across the desk for Mr. Armstrong. But anyway, he wanted me to explain to him some things about the epistles, in fact, about this very book. Because he said, I want to give a Bible study. And he said, I know you've been teaching epistles of Paul for several years. And he said, I've been like a one-armed paper hanger when I started this work. And I had to find this and that and sort the wheat from the chaff. And it takes a long time to get it all straight. And can you give me some pointers? And I did about how to explain this. And he nodded. He got it. And he did explain it that very night in the Bible study. Later, he would forget and go back. As I found myself doing, once in a while, Mr. Ames or Dr. Winnale explained some technical point to me, usually on prophecy or chronology, and without realizing it, which comes first, the attack on America or the uh, something or other, I'll go back because I had certain things st stuck in my brain for 40 years. And as you get older, you tend to go back to the original, you see, and that's what he did. But he... Always explain so you knew people or people that are Armstrong worshipers and think that he could not make a mistake. He said he could. He made little technical mistakes. But he explained, generally speaking, that under the law meant under the penalty of the law. Some of you remember that, Mr. Lindley. I don't you remember. He said under the penalty of the law. That's the way I explained it. But it does not always mean that, brethren. And I explained that briefly in my talk to him that afternoon, but he forgot that later and went back to the old explanation. The word under the law means under the authority, and it often means under the law in a negative sense. You can see under the authority of the law means that you are, that's over you and maybe you've broken it or something, but it has a negative context and you have to interpret how much of a negative context by the context. By the context, the verses around it, what he's talking about. So it says at verse 2, he is under guardians, under guardians. Does it mean he's broken something or he's a sinner? No, but he's under their authority. And then it uses that same expression uh, here. Uh, we're children, we're in bondage. Uh, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Now, did Christ... Was Christ born a sinner? Was Christ born under the law, meaning he was a sinner, if that's what the term under the law means? No, Christ was not born a sinner. He was under, at that time, until he died and reconciled us to God, he was under the overall legal system of Moses that was still being carried out. And when that system broke some of God's laws, which it did, he condemned them. You know, how come you follow the traditions of men and not the commandments of God? Remember, he corrected them powerfully in uh, Romans, I mean, uh, uh, Mark 7, and I think Matthew 15 and other places. Powerfully corrected them for following the traditions of men and some of their system because they'd added do's and don'ts to what God said as well. 
But Christ was not under the law in the sense of being a sinner. Under the law didn't mean break the law. He was born under the law. How could you say he was under the law? Well, his parents had him circumcised at eight days old. They took him up when he was a little kid to Jerusalem for the Passover. And at age 20, at age 12, they took him up again and he obeyed. But he did stay behind for a while and talked to the Jewish lawyers. He was so brilliant. But he went along, not with sin, but it was right for him to be there. And then one time the... Uh, the tax collectors came and said, do you, do you pay the half denarii, whatever it was, to the temple, the temple tax? And maybe he thought for a second, didn't have to think very long as the Son of God. He, he said, he, gave, he said uh, uh, yes, or whatever. He gave a sort of a parable to the guy, but indicated he would pay. But then he told Peter, for Peter's instruction, he said, we ought to do this so we don't offend them. It was a civil law based on things that God did in ancient Israel. But he did pay the temple tax by having Peter go to the lake and get the first fish had this coin in it, remember? And, and that coin was worth two temple taxes. This will be for you and me. So he did follow even those things that were okay of the Roman, I mean, the Jewish system, as long as they were not breaking God's law. He was under the authority, tried to respect that in that way. But he did not sin spiritually. He was not under the law in the sense of breaking God's law. So he was born of a woman, born under the law, under the authority of the law, the whole system, to redeem those who were under the law, were they all sinners? Well, yes, they were in that sense, but he wasn't. But they were under the whole system. Redeem those. You don't need to be redeemed from the Ten Commandments, but they did need to be redeemed from that whole system so they didn't have to follow all the do's and don'ts of Judaism. To redeem those who were under the law, that we, that is, we Jews who knew the law, who grew up in this whole system, we might receive the spirit of sonship. The Greek expression here. As commentaries point out, not all of them, some of them show, the Greek word means to make a son. It can either mean adoption or it can mean make a son. We often kid about the new international version, NIV, the non-inspired version, NIV, you know what, that's NIV too, so we kid about that. But in this case, it's right. A number of other translations have it that it's the spirit of sonship. They were given God's don't ever let people say we're adopted by God. We are not adopted by God. I didn't adopt my sons. They came right out from me and they have my nature. And, you know, each of our children has parts of our nature that need to be converted and help get rid of that part of my nature that's bad. But at least they have our nature in them. And so when we're born of God, we have His very nature. We're not adopted. And because you... He's been saying, we, 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 through this chapter. Now, all of a sudden, he changes. He says, you. Now, he's talking to the Gentiles, because most of the people in the area of Galatia in the churches were Gentiles. They had been former pagans, worshiping Diana and the other pagan gods. You are sons. See, you're also sons, he's saying, because God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. As they say in the commentaries, that term Ab is a very personal, intimate term. Like we'd say, Daddy, Father, Brethren, if we really come to know God and just feed on this book, God will seem more and more like a Father. And we will come to know God, and He will be our Father. 
But we, once we know God, we should have a profound feeling. We're really Christians. We're having Christ in us. We know God as Father. Daddy, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ, then indeed when you did not know God, what do you mean did not know God? He's talking to the Gentiles. Did they know God? No, they did not know God. You turn back to to uh, the book of John here. And he says in John chapter 4, verse 22, John 4, verse 22, to this uh, uh, Gentile woman, he says, You worship, you do not know what. You worship, you know not what the King James has. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. They didn't know God. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What is truth? Jesus said later, John 17, 17, Thy word is truth. That's how you know about God. Study this book. Feed on it. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the Gentiles do not know God. I know our modern Protestant leaders, they think, well, it's true that Jesus said you can only be saved through Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that. But, well, maybe he lets the Gentiles come in some other way. If they're really good people, somehow God will bring them to heaven too. Well, of course, they get that all mixed up. They're not going to heaven either, (laughs) and neither are all these Gentiles. They're going to be called later. God is not trying to save the world now. God's name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. If He were trying to save the world, He would save the world. He's not trying to now. He let Him go their own way. So, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are no gods. You were worshiping idols and spirits and demons. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, you Gentile Christians, how is it that you turn again Turn again to the laws or the rituals of Moses or the Ten Commandments. No, it's not talking about that. That's again what the Protestants try to make it out to be. It's not. They were turning back to where they'd been. Turning again to what? They'd been pagans. You're turning again to the elements in which you desired again to be in bondage. They liked all this system where they would worship. They'd sent certain times, the Ides of March and the certain... Times of the horoscope would help them do this and that. And he said, you observe days and months and times, as the King James has it, times and years. Now, the Old Testament has two or three references that I should, I don't have time to give you all of that, but look it up. And he's talking about Gentile practices. Doesn't talk about God's times. God doesn't call his holy days times. God's holy days are commanded by God to be kept. And Paul kept them and the New Testament church kept them. But they were keeping these Gentile times and lucky and unlucky days like Friday the 13th, you know, all those superstitious things. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me. The kind of difficult wording, but he says, I I love you and and, uh, I hope you love me. You know that because of the physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first and at my trial you do not despise me, receive me as the angel of God. I bear you witness, verse 15, that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Why eyes? 
Well, Paul's infirmity in the flesh may have been in his eyes. And uh, we don't know that. But you know, in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, he talks about uh, his infirmity here in 2 Corinthians 12. I might turn there briefly. 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, 12, you'll find here uh, what he's referring to. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He talks about being caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words. He said, I will not boast of such a one, but obviously talk about himself, unless I, so he's talking about himself, verse 7, should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. He wouldn't get exalted if it was someone else getting the revelations, you see. That might make him feel inferior. This other guy got him, and I didn't. No, it was given to Paul. A thorn in the flesh. It wasn't some demon, as some commentaries try to express it, although the demon could have caused the infirmity, but it wasn't just a normal disease. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So he says over here, they would have given him their eyes. He may have had some terrible eye disease. They had a lot of uncleanliness at that time, and, and uh, Paul, uh, different commenters uh, describe different things that could have happened, and it must have made him... I know how I would feel if we didn't have glasses today, being very nearsighted. If I took off my glasses, I could see bodies out here, and I could sort of see whether you people on the front row were or two are, are smiling or sneering, but beyond that, it would just be blank. I feel kind of helpless. There's a whole sea of people. I don't know whether they're about to throw rotten tomatoes at me or whether they like what I'm saying. You see what I mean. Paul had a great humility because he, he couldn't see properly. And they, they would have given him their eyes. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You love me so much and I'm having to correct you now. They, who are these people? He didn't know for sure. They zealously court you but for no good. They want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. And there are other sect they're trying to build up here. Get people away. But it is good to be zealous, and a good thing always, if it's a good thing, be zealous. And not only when I'm present with you. Yes, be, be zealous for God. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again. I'm laboring in birth to try to get you into the kingdom of God, he says, uh, until Christ is formed in you. That's an interesting expression, until Christ is formed in you. Is Christ formed in you and in me? We should think about that. I would like to be present with you to change my tone. I hate to correct you, for I have doubts about you. Tell me you who desire to be under the law, that is under the whole system, the negative context here. Do you not hear the law? And now he starts quoting again from the law. Is he quoting about animal sacrifices and all. He's just quoting from the Old Testament and the whole Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the whole Pentateuch is often called the law, the whole thing. So do you hear the law? It is written, Abraham had two sons. That's from Genesis. The one by a bondwoman. Remember, he was given Sarah's handmaid because she couldn't have a child at first. And she told him to, but that wasn't good anyway. So he went into her, they had a child, and the other by a free woman. Finally, Sarah was able to have a child. But he was a, the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, a carnal way in their self-will, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. So God says here it's symbolism. For these are the two covenants. 
that old thing of Abraham and the whole system that came down was through Moses and all represented as though that were the law of the bondwoman. They took things into themselves. It was all physical. The one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage which is Hagar, the bondwoman. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai where they got not just the Ten Commandments but the whole system and corresponds to Jerusalem which now is uh, in uh, uh, Jerusalem which now is in children with her bondage with her children. In other words, the, the, the Jews around them right then were under this whole system and having their morning, noon, and night sacrifices and animal uh, sacrifices and washings. But the Jerusalem above is free. So he's talking about the spiritual church of God, the spiritual uh, family where God guides us spiritually today and we are his family by spiritual begettal. And it's not a physical thing you can see in the normal way. Everyone in God's church, even all of you, I'm sorry to say, maybe me, I hope I'm okay, I better be, but we might not all be part of spiritual Jerusalem. Only God knows. He knows who are really converted, you see, and we don't always know that. Mr. Armstrong used to look out at the church and he'd say, I don't think even half of you people are really converted. And boy, was he right (laughs) at that time. They're all sitting out there, but they didn't get it. He says, I don't think you get it. And a lot of them didn't get it. They just fell right away after he died. But at any rate, the spiritual Jerusalem is those who have God's spirit and are called out to have that special relationship with God. Part of a reference to this would be back in Hebrews, if you want to turn there. Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And you'll notice something here. He says... To them, he says, "You're not. Uh, you've come to Mount Zion, not to not to the ancient Sinai, but you, verse 22, have come to Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, God's angels with God's people, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That is the mother of us all, Christ guiding." His angels protecting, God watching over us spiritually, who are registered in heaven. Only God knows whose names are there. To God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. We're going to join the spirits of just men made perfect in due time. And hopefully we have that attitude in God's spirit now. That is the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all. And God guides His church overall, will guide us, but He allows us individually to make mistakes. And as I've said, brethren, when the world, when uh, the worldwide church of God came apart, I had doubts. I didn't say, well, I'm perfect and I know God is going to guide all this just perfectly. I was wondering for a while, what is God doing? And it kind of shook me. And then later I realized, Rod, you've got a responsibility. That came to me over time as they changed everything. I've got to do something. And so did the work, did the people have to wait for years or for 13 years like Joseph did from age 17 to 30 to get help or others for hundreds of years? No. Just a few months after they came out with the God as booklet and everything began to change big time within just a few months. We were on the radio in Glendale, K-I-E-V, with the World Ahead radio program and we were publishing a magazine and we started the Global Church of God soon after we went on this K 
K-A-A-F or something in Little Rock, later W-O-A-I, 50,000-watt clear channel station in San Antonio, and later we went on television and so on. So we were able to get the work started within a few months. They didn't have to wait forever. God did not forsake us. There was a short while when there was, it didn't seem like any real true work because Mr. Armstrong had told his brethren not to follow his son. He says it's not the church of God and certainly he would not have told them to follow this other guy who tried to pronounce himself Mr. Armstrong's successor and who calls himself a prophet and puts a strange twist on hundreds of scriptures and I mean hundreds when you read his stuff it's just a strange twist and is very mean and kicks people out of his church for almost no reason. But anyway, uh, there was a legitimate church they could go to. The God is, uh, the God guided this, the church in that way is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who do not travail, <clears throat> that is carnal Israel, <clears throat> for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. And I would like to go back in Isaiah 54 and explain that. But it's talking about the spiritual church and God reproducing himself and bringing forth the whole people later on. Now, we, we, brethren, he's talking now to all of them, as Isaac was, are children of promise. God has called us. But as we, he who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael back there, was persecuting Isaac, even so it is now. The self-righteous Jews were persecuting the Christians. And so, brethren, we're not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We're part of the free woman. We are the Israel above. We are the church of God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. We are not under the old ceremonial law. Chapter 5, verse 1 now. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Are the Ten Commandments a yoke of bondage? Well, of course not. They were never called a yoke of bondage at any time in the Bible. But the whole legal system at times was called that, and Paul certainly or Peter implied it was very difficult to keep all of that as we read back, and I explained back in Acts chapter 15, verse 10. The whole legal system was very difficult for them, and no one kept it perfectly. But what about the spiritual uh, commandments of God are they a yoke of bondage? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Again, the Bible interprets the Bible. Turn with me on that point back to James, brethren, back to the book of James, chapter 2. He says uh, in chapter 2, verse 8, James 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's called the royal law. You do well, but if you show partiality and commit sin, you're convicted by the law. Was the law nailed to the cross? No, James is writing about 30 years later. The law must still be there. You can't be convicted by the law if it's done away, you see, as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the law, the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not murder, now, if you do not commit adultery but murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do, verse 12 is the key verse, as those who will be judged by, what is this law he's talking about? The law that talks about murder and adultery. 
That is the Ten Commandments. He says, as though, so speak and do as those who will be judged by not the rituals, not the animal sacrifices, but the law of liberty. The Ten Commandments are not a yoke of bondage. God's own word says here, they're a law of liberty. And all of you, please think this through quickly. I'd like to have a whole sermon on that. If someone doesn't beat me to it, that's fine. But, you know, if the whole world were to keep the Ten Commandments, wow, we would have liberty. We would, we would need locks on our doors. We would need the police force. We might need some middle-aged retired women to just be traffic wardens for the little children getting across the street, you know, to warn people to stop. And they would stop, though. And, and we, we wouldn't need any, any, any military, all the money and devoted to prisons, the billions of dollars for prisons and policemen and guns and war and tanks and planes. It would be used for beautiful national parks to enlarge our cities, to make things beautiful all over the world. And everyone would love everyone else. The liberty would be fantastic. The tax rates would go way down and people could have a type of happiness and peace of mind such as they have never had in human history if the whole world were to keep the law of liberty. Okay, well, let's understand that. <clears throat> he goes on then, uh, the law of liberty, stand fast in the liberty. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised... Why would you become circumcised after you're in the church? Obviously, they were being circumcised in order to be forgiven their past sins, as he says throughout the whole chapter. And as it said back in, in Acts chapter 15, the whole point was you get circumcised and that forgives you, you see. That makes you right with God. So if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is debtor, what, to keep the Ten Commandments? No, listen, notice here, he's debtor to keep the whole law. The whole law. So that's what he's talking about. The whole ball of wax. The whole system. Remember that. That's the key thing in this whole chapter. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be. What's the problem? Here it is again. Justified by the law. That's what he's talking about over and over. You get made right by keeping various parts of the Old Testament system. And he says, you don't get justified by that, but by Christ. For through the Spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Faith works through love. Faith works. Faith has to have something behind it. Again, turn back to James where we were a moment ago, turn back to James 2, and we'll see how that is. And that's very important. That's one reason Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism, called James an epistle of straw. He hated the book of James because it completely contradicted what he was trying to come across with, a lawless theology. James said back here in uh, James 2, verse 21, James 2, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working together with his works and by works. By what? Obviously, obeying God in this case, in many ways, was faith made perfect. He did what God said. 
And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God. If you really believe God, you'll do what God says. It's action, living faith. So you'll keep his commandments. And it's accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. A friend of God because he had that living faith to do what God said. And I say, oh, well, I'm just, I just have faith, but I don't have to do anything. You see then that a man is justified. Get this. This is, this is a verse they really don't like. <laughs> you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. That shoots down the whole Protestant movement right there, if you really understand that one verse. All right. Well, that's the key things that we are wrestling with here. And then he says, you ran well, Galatians 5 and verse uh, 7, who hindered you? Again, he wasn't really sure from, from obeying the truth. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, leaven tends to spread through the whole bread, and, and it's a symbol of sin spreading. And so he says these people that do these bad things will bear judgment. And he said in verse 12, he's very strong, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. And Paul is very plain. He says, I wish they'd go get castrated or whatever he's meaning here. He's very plain. So this is the Bible, brethren. Don't get offended. But, but Paul was very plain, and so is God. He was angry with these men. For you, brethren, have been called liberty, not on to liberty to use as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in the one word, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Now, is the first commandments? No, but he's obviously talking about that aspect of the law dealing with one another. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you're consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the flesh, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so he says in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law in a negative sense. You don't need the whole system to tutor you, and you're certainly not under the penalty of the law as long as you walk in, in, in the faith, you see, or led by the Spirit. The works of the flesh, adultery, fornication. Remember, young man, fornication is a sin too, not just adultery. Uncleanness. Various forms of perversion, homosexuality, and so on. Licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, faith. Sorcery, hatred, I mean. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Human nature, I want what I want when I want it. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness. Drunkenness is wrong. Revelries and the like, of which I've told you beforehand, that those who practice, notice, brethren, it doesn't say that you'll cut off forever. If you make a mistake, many young people make mistakes growing up, but those who practice, you keep on doing those things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be there. God wants people who have the right character in His kingdom. Otherwise, they make themselves and everyone else miserable forever. But the fruit, the result of God's Spirit is love, outflowing concern for fellow man, the worship and adoration for God, joy, you can have a peace of mind you could not have any other way, brethren. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. Through God's Spirit, you can learn to control yourself, discipline yourself, say no to the bad, say yes to the good. 
So you need to learn to do that. Against us there is no law, and they, uh, those who are Christ's, if you're really converted, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let's walk in the Spirit. Have God's Spirit guiding our lives. Not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Let us be, not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All this competition. Brethren, if a man is overtaken and a trespass of sin, you are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. So be humble. Be willing to forgive him, help him, bring him back. And he goes on with that. I'm going to have to skim this last part, as you can see, or I'll keep you way over so one of our other ministers can spill this in, or I, maybe I will later. Let him who is taught in the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. All the brethren should try to give generously their tithes and offerings to help the work. And that's what Paul is saying here, in effect. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If all his mind is on just making more money or laying up treasure, he'll be suffering for that. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap if we do not faint. So don't give up and quit. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and brethren, we're trying to help the people in Haiti who are suffering, and we should do that. And we sent several thousand dollars down to a, a very reputable charity to help the people in general in a way we can't do. And we're going to send more, a few thousand, I don't know how many thousand. We'll talk to Mr. Pierre and see what the needs are there. But we'll send some more down pretty soon so that we can help them directly in the church. We, we could take every dime that ever came here and we could have taken literally every dime ever sent that ever came into Mr. Armstrong when the income was over $200 million a year and the dollar was worth three times as much back then. Three times as much. So it would be like a two-thirds of a, of, a, of a billion dollars in actual worth today. But we could have taken every single red cent and dumped it into India. Would it have saved the people in India? no. Those hundreds of millions would have spent it all up in a matter of minutes or days. Then they'd be right back worshiping the sacred cow and getting all their diseases from their filth and their wrong way of life. The only way the people of India, the people of China, the people of Indonesia, the people of Africa, the people of the Middle East and elsewhere are going to be helped permanently and genuinely is through the kingdom of God. So we've got to do that. That is our calling. So we should help those around as we have special needs and sense something unusual or it's our own brethren. But we cannot be do-gooders spending a lot of our money on the Gentiles out here, spiritual Gentiles. I mean, they just don't know. They don't know what the money's coming from or what it's for. We know it should be getting that message around the world. But do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. See what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. So Paul probably was very nearsighted or something. He had to write large letters, apparently, so he could see what he was writing. That hit me. I understand what he said, because I have to do the same thing if I take my glasses off. As many desire to make a showing in the flesh, these try to compel you to be circumcised. See, they want you to follow them in these rituals. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. They don't keep the whole system, and they certainly don't keep the spiritual law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. They have so many more followers and they just want to get followers. But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We need to have a greater emphasis on that as the Passover approaches. We should glory in the cross. Jesus Christ died to pay for our sins. I can't be forgiven my sins by just working harder and writing more articles and teaching more classes and preaching more sermons. That's not going to save me. I know that, but it's good to focus on that. You need to do your part. We need to obey God, but we're forgiven our past sins through the sacrifice of the very Son of God. We glory in what Christ did in that way, and that's fine. To whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, spiritually speaking, avails anything but a new creation. We're made a new creature in Christ Jesus, and yet we are to have the, keep the commandments of God. As Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel, what Israel? The Israel of God. When we are spiritually circumcised, when we are really converted and have God's Spirit, we all become spiritually Israelites, as we saw at the end of chapter 3. We become spiritually Israelites. We're neither male nor female, black or white, bond or free. We're all one in Christ. We're all spiritually Israelites. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That's the real Israel. From now on, let no one trouble me, trying to get me to get circumcised or to get others or so whatever, for I bear in my body... I've gone through Mark's all right. Of course, Paul was circumcised. He was Jewish, but he's using an analogy here. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I've been willing to go through cuttings. These whips cut right in my body when he was whipped and whipped again and again by the Jews and the Gentiles and went through untold suffering. The marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We all have a human spirit. The essence of God, of our nature is there. And God works with that spirit. He closes every letter like that, by the way. That testifies what letter is Paul. He'll always mention the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, be with your spirit. Amen. Well, that's the end of the letter. And I barely made it, I hope, within the time. I'd like to take more time, believe me. As I said, we used to have an Epistles of Paul class uh, 45 hours each semester. So we had more time but I've given you the overview and spent more time even reviewing chapter 3 so you can get these references to show what he's talking about when he talks about the law, the curse of the law, and all these expressions. Look back what he's quoting, and then you'll know. He's not talking in any way whatsoever about God's wonderful spiritual law, the law of liberty, being done away with at all, ever. It lasts forever. And we're to have Christ living in us and Christ will always live the same way he lived 1,900 years ago. Well, thanks for coming and hope you can get this in your mind and really prove this yourself. Don't let anyone deceive you. That's why Peter said that at the end of his life. And that's why we're giving you this series today.